seek Christ. I believe that Christ shines most clearly and fully within the Orthodox tradition. I cannot say that people outside of the Orthodox, the canonical boundaries of the Orthodox Church do not know Christ or have any contact with Christ at all. I don't believe that. Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we seek to bring simplicity out of theological complexity. And today we're diving into some of that complexity. We're talking about orthodoxy and its relationship to non-orthodox groups, specifically with Catholics and Protestants, as well as the question of why be orthodox? And to answer these questions, I'm with none other than Father Andrew Stephen Damick. He is such a brilliant communicator. It was so much fun getting to talk with him. If you haven't heard of him, I'm sure you're going to enjoy him and be devouring his content after this. Before we jump into it, I want to say thanks to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make this channel possible. Really appreciate all of you, especially my patrons who, out of your incredible generosity, you give monthly to support me and this channel. Seriously, you guys are the best. I, I appreciate that so much. If you want to support me in this channel, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. Or if you're not into the whole subscription thing, you've got too, too many of those in your life already. Hear that? Uh, go ahead. If you want to support the channel, you don't have to. Uh, but if you want to make a one-time gift, you can go to paypal.me slash gospel simplicity. Seriously, appreciate all of you so much that make this possible. Well, without further ado, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Today, I am joined by Father Andrew Stephen Damick. The very reverend archpriest Andrew Stephen Damick is chief content officer of Ancient Faith Ministries, the former pastor of St. Paul Antiochian Orthodox Church of Emmaus, Pennsylvania, and the author of Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, as well as several other books, An Introduction to God, Bearing God, and his forthcoming book, Arise, O God, The Gospel of Christ's Defeat of Demons, Sin, and Death. He is also a prolific podcaster. He's been podcasting since 2007 and is the host of Orthodox Engagement, Amon Sul, Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, and Roads from Emmaus, as well as the co-host of the Lord of Spirits and the Areopagus podcast. He also stays busy by frequently lecturing and doing retreats at parishes and in other settings, and his work is well known throughout the English-speaking Orthodox world, not only for his books and podcasts, but also via documentaries and online video. Father Andrew Stephen Damick, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. Well, I am so excited for this interview. It has been a highly requested one, and I was really excited when we could make it happen here. And today we're going to be kind of talking broadly about the question of why be Orthodox, which is a big question. And yep. I obviously don't lay all that weight on you uh, to answer <laughs> that for everyone, but I'm excited to hear your take on this. Uh, but before we kind of get into maybe some of the technical reasons uh, for why people should be Orthodox, why are you Orthodox? In other words, how did you end up uh, becoming Orthodox and being an Orthodox priest and now doing what you do with ancient Wow. Faith? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a long story, <laughs> but, um, you know, very briefly, I was raised as the son of evangelical Protestant missionaries. Um, my parents worked for a mission called Transworld Radio, now just known as TWR, which is the largest Christian, mis Christian, Christian missionary radio organization in the world. And, um, when I was in college, uh, I became aware of the existence of the Orthodox Church actually through a kind of offhand comment in a conversation that I was having with a friend who at the time had decided to become a Roman Catholic. Um, he was a fellow missionary kid and was talking about you know, the, the reasons he didn't want to remain evangelical Protestant anymore. Um, 
and in the course of the conversation, the Orthodox Church was mentioned. Uh, neither one of us really knew anything about it, actually. But um, I went back to the computer lab at the university where I was studying and pulled up Alta Vista because there was no Google in those days. There was Alta Vista. And I, I don't even know if that even exists anymore. And, um, and looked it up. And um, in those days, that was the late 90s, just about everything that was on the internet about the Orthodox Church, you could read in the space of about three weeks. Uh, I, I know because I because I did. Um, now, of course, you could spend the rest of your life trying to read it all. You know, it's, it's just proliferated so much since then. And in the course of that, I became very intrigued by what I was reading about and eventually joined a couple of email discussion groups. Um, you know, social media was very much in its infancy stages back then. There was no Facebook, no Twitter, not even MySpace or, or any of those those ancient social media sites. There was Usenet, there were some email groups, and that was about it, really. Um, but I got a couple of email, email groups, and there was a guy who saw from my email address uh, that I lived in his town, because those were the days when what your email address said, said something about either where you lived or where you went to school or something like that. And he invited me to church. I didn't know him, um, but I went. And it was a tiny little mission, actually, with only 10 people in it. And uh, they were meeting in a borrowed space that belonged to the, I think, administrative building of the local Episcopal diocese. And um, that was the first time I saw liturgical worship in person. And um, I was just astonished at the experience. And even though I did not make any decisions on that day to become an Orthodox Christian, that's really the day that decided it for me. And over the weeks that followed, I thought a lot about my experience and realized that that's where I needed to be. And so after being invited by someone else to another Orthodox church in the area, one that was close to my house, I went there and uh, within a week or so, I was contacting the priest and saying, how do I join this thing? You know, How do I do this Orthodoxy thing? And uh, and he guided me through the process. And then in um, at Pascha in 1998, I became an Orthodox Christian. So I've been Orthodox for almost 25 years now. I'm getting pretty close to that. And um, maybe uh, it was six years later that I went to seminary and at uh, St. Tikhon Seminary here in Pennsylvania and uh, was ordained in the fall of 2006 to the priesthood. So I've been a priest for almost 15 years now and uh, served for a couple of years as the assistant pastor at St. George Cathedral in Charleston, West Virginia, and then served as the pastor of St. Paul here in Emmaus, Pennsylvania from 2009 to uh, 2020, when my term ended right in the middle of the pandemic, which was uh, a little bit difficult for the church to switch pastors in that kind of situation. I had to announce my departure from the pastor to the parish via a YouTube video that was privately shared with the church rather than being able to actually see everybody in person. Because at the time, I think we were only allowed to have 10 people in the church or something like that. And um, at that time, then I became the chief content officer for Ancient Faith Ministries, which is the leading Orthodox media ministry in the world functioning in English. And uh, But I've been working with them now since 2009. So it was a very easy fit. We already had a really good, strong relationship together. And uh, the idea made sense to everyone. And uh, it took a few years to make it actually happen. But uh, now I've been doing it for almost a year. And I'm, it's really a dream job, actually. I get to talk and write and uh, connect with people pretty much for a living. So thank God. 
Wow, what a journey. That's that's so neat to hear. Thank you for sharing all of that. And yeah, it sounds like a, a great setup for you. I've really benefited from getting to hear some of your podcasts, your books, so grateful uh, for Ancient Faith for making some of that possible as well. And I, I'd love to just ask a little bit there. So uh, it, it's a long story and you went through that so well. <laughs> right. uh, but, so you you start looking up on, it up online and there's about three weeks worth of content there and you, you breeze through that. And then you go to the mission church and you experience liturgical worship. And that, that does something to you that inspires you to come back. And then you go, I think it was a different church you said, and yeah, start talking parish. to the to the priest there about how do you become Orthodox? What was it that, like, was it the liturgy? What what drew you in? Was it the, what you had been primed with online? Kind of how did that work together to get to that moment of like, I'm becoming Orthodox? Yeah, it's it's hard to describe because describing it really kind of requires accepting that knowledge comes to us in different ways, right? There's different kinds of knowledge. And so there's different ways of receiving that knowledge as well. So on the one hand, you know, I could point to uh, arguments, right? Like, so I became convinced, for instance, that that the Orthodox Church was the historic church that was still preaching and practicing exactly what it is that Christ taught the apostles, that it's the same faith, right? But that's not really the, that's not the only thing. And it's not, I, I would not say it was the deciding factor. I, I, I don't know how to actually identify if there was a single deciding factor. I do know that once I encountered that beauty, that I desired it more than I even knew that I had been desiring it. If that makes sense. You know, yeah. that, that, that there's, there was something that I received in the midst of that, that I had never received before in my life. And, you know, my, my background at the time, I was working as a stagehand, actually. So I, I had 10 years working in, in technical theater. And I worked a lot of concerts, a lot of productions of various kinds. And the kind of church, the kind of evangelical church I was attending at the time was a, uh, in the early stages of, of being a mega church. You know, this is the 1990s, so it was not quite the kind of massive production that, that is the norm now. Um, but it was still the beginning of that kind of thing. And, and you know, Sunday morning was essentially a, a concert and then um, a good, long, you know, engaging lecture following it. Right. And one of the things that I realized when I was in church at the evangelical church was, you know, the experience that these people are having around me, they're putting their hands up and they're having a very strong emotional experience. I know how to generate that professionally. I can just make it happen by putting all of these pieces together. Now, that's not to say that they were not sincere or that the people who were engaged in that um, service were not sincere people, but I knew how to put a concert together that made people respond in that way. And there was something about that that um, something just sort of fell away from me and I became kind of disillusioned by that. Um, and I remember that one of the last Sundays I was at the evangelical church, they sang lean on me, which is a great song. You know, I love that song. It's a great old song, but I was like, what does this have to do with worshiping Christ? You know, and, um, and no one at the church that I talked to about that stuff could really answer the questions that I had. They, I don't think they even knew what it is I was asking exactly. Um, but I realized that I was the man behind the curtain to use that phrase from the wizard of Oz you know, that I knew how to make these things happen. And so, um, you know, the, the, the history and the sense of, of continuity and so forth, 
those were very important to me. The fact that the doctrine made sense. Um, but I think that the thing that truly drew me was that sense of, of timeless beauty and, uh, not that it was, it, it was, it was more than a merely aesthetic experience. You know, it was cause I'd had lots of aesthetic experiences in my life. You know, I was in my twenties by that point and I had seen some beautiful things, experienced some beautiful things, but, uh, you know, fairly well traveled, but, uh, but nothing like that little room in the, that Episcopal building where the divine liturgy happened that Sunday morning with 10 people there. Wow. That's such a, such a neat journey. And I can relate to a lot of parts of that in that I grew up in like a mega church and my mom was actually a creative director there. So like I spent my childhood in like church sound booths and I've, I've seen behind mm. those curtains. And that's so interesting to be able to go from the secular world, if you will, and be doing those same things and then see it in church and feel like maybe they're a little too similar in some of those ways and get to experience that uh, something completely different in the Orthodox Church. So thanks for sharing that story. I think um, a lot of people will resonate with various parts of that in their experience, either in the evangelical church or in encountering orthodoxy. Today, we're going to be talking a bit about the relationship of orthodoxy to non-orthodox. And as we get into this question of why be orthodox, I kind of want to start with the relationship of orthodox Christians to non-orthodox Christians. Um, And I don't even know how you feel about that terminology, so you're free to change any of that. Um, It's fine. But Okay. I've encountered various answers on this. Um, You know, one of the first uh, kind of exposures to orthodoxy for me was uh, Metropolitan Callistos Ware's books, which I think a lot of people will have similar experiences, and getting kind of an impression of we know where the church is or we know where the spirit is, but we're not going to say where the spirit is not and kind of relationships like that. I don't want to misrepresent him, but just kind of that answer in general. I've seen that. And then I've also seen essentially characterizing, like say the relationship between Orthodox and a Trinitarian Christian who's not Orthodox as basically analogous to the relationship between like an Orthodox and a Buddhist. Like they're just completely different things. Um, where, how do you see that relationship? Um, because as, as someone on the outside and look, my audience is very used to hearing people they disagree with because they all disagree with each other. So feel free to say (laughs) whatever, um, whatever you say, like two thirds will disagree with, but (laughs) how do you, (laughs) but they're used to it and they're, they're fantastic. Uh, they will be kind. Um, but like for someone who's on the outside, the answer to that seems to be of some significance. How, yeah. how is that person viewed? Um, so how would you answer that? Hey, we'll be right back to the interview. But first, I want to tell you about another sponsor for today, and that is Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a group of Christian counselors that exist to help you get the help you need. You know, one of the first YouTube videos I ever made was called You Can Have Jesus and a Therapist Too. And what I wanted to do in that video was draw out the fact that so many people are struggling with mental health. And the last thing we want to do is make it more difficult for people to reach out to get the help they need by creating this stigma around it. It's something that I'm really passionate about and think we need to end in Christian circles. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with Faithful Counseling. Their counselors all will be counseling from a Christian perspective. And you can 
connect with them from any country in the world. They have counselors that speak many different languages. And hey, if you, it's important to you to have a counselor from your specific tradition or background, they can do their part to try to pair you up with one of them as well. All of their counselors are licensed with over 3,000 hours of experience. You can connect with these counselors in a variety of ways. Four, in fact, you can do video sessions, phone calls, live chat, or messaging. All of the messaging is secure. And if it's between scheduled ses sessions, you'll receive a response within 24 to 48 hours. If this is interesting to you, if you think this would be helpful for you or maybe a loved one, I'd encourage you to go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. If you do that, first of all, you'll get 10% off your order and you'll be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity to be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours and get 10% off your first month. Faithful counseling costs $260 per month, which gets you unlimited messaging with your counselor in four 30-minute sessions. But again, if you go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, you'll get 10% off that first month. Lastly, faithful counseling is not a crisis line. If you are currently experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to a crisis line or hotline. You can find one of them at www.crisistextline.org. Please do so. And reach out. You do not have to do this alone. Well, thank you all so much, and I will let you get back to the video, but if you want to check them out, again, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. The link is in my bio and in the pinned comment. Well, back to the interview. So, there's a lot of different angles to discuss the question from. Um, you know, one could ask, well, what is the sort of canonical view, meaning how do the church canons uh, address non-Orthodox people? Um, you could also simply ask, what is people's personal opinions? And frankly, a lot of Orthodox Christians have a lot of different opinions about this. And I've, I've heard... Um, I've heard the whole range between the things that you described. And even further down the range, I've heard Orthodox people say, well, we really are all the same. You just go to the church that you like the best, right? I've heard Orthodox people say that. Um, I The way that makes the most sense to me comes from something that was said by the eminent uh, 20th century Orthodox theologian, Father George Florovsky. Um, and Florovsky was extremely active in um, the ecumenical movement in the early and mid 20th century and actually stuck with it for a really long time, even when it started to really seem to be going bad in the 60s and 70s. And um, his reasons for doing that seem to be mainly based on relationship and a sense of trying to witness to, to non-Orthodox people about the Orthodox faith. And um, at no point does he kind of compromise Orthodox Christianity in the work that he did. And so that's part of what gives this comment that he made a lot of um, authority, I think, and integrity, um, you know. So he said that in the phrase separated brethren, that equal emphasis has to be laid on each of those two words, on each of the two words. So separated brethren referring to Orthodox Christians and then other Christians, non-Orthodox Christians. And you know, the, the problem that a lot of people have is they tend to emphasize one word over the other. You know, they wanted to say, well, we're all brethren, you know, and that's the important thing. And that's not just Orthodox people who say that. There's non-Orthodox Christians who say that kind of stuff too. You know, we're all brethren. Uh, you know, the, the difference is let's not, let's not talk about that stuff, right? You know, that just divides that, and don't we all love Christ, right? And then there's some people that really like to lay the emphasis on the word separated, you know, really emphasizing the differences and 
um, and even putting uh, salvific weight in them, right? For all of them, right? And, you know, the, the idea that outside of the canonical boundaries of the church is basically undifferentiated darkness. So if you're a Baptist, that's pretty much the same thing as if you're a Muslim. You know, that if you're, if you're a, a Yazidi, that's pretty much the same thing as being a Lutheran. You know, that, that really the, the differences between them don't actually matter to us as Orthodox Christians because it's just all out there, right? Um, but, but Florovsky makes the point that you have to put equal emphasis on both. So on the one hand, those who want to emphasize the differences have to actually see that someone who loves Jesus Christ believes that is truly God in man and believes that he is the second person of the Trinity, three persons, one essence, one God, is much closer to me than someone who does not believe any of those things. And to try to claim that that's really just the same, it does not make any actual existential sense. You know, when I meet non-Christians and talk with them about their faith, it is very different from meeting Christians who are not Orthodox and talking with them about their faith. There's much, much more in common. And there is there is a similarity of spirit, if not an identity of spirit, between people who truly believe that Jesus Christ is God, right? On the other hand, uh, those who want to emphasize the fact that we're close need to also realize that differences actually do matter and that they, they matter so much that throughout most of Christian history that you know, doctrinal differences were so critical that whole councils were called together with bishops traveling huge distances at massive expense in order to, to iron out exactly the way that Christ would be worshipped and how who he is would be taught, right? If those kinds of differences don't matter, then we are actually laying judgment on all the generations of Christians before us, pretty much almost all of them with the exception of maybe just the last few generations, right? Um, now, I, I believe there are a lot of people ready, ready and willing to do that, but why don't we listen to the arguments that they make? You know, So if someone is truly teaching a different Jesus, that's going to affect the way you worship. It's going to affect the way you pray and so forth. Um, you know, The greater the differences are, the greater the, the effect is going to be, right? So uh, you know, the the conversation around separated brethren um, required what Florovsky called a theology of the, uh, I think he called it, it wasn't the aberrant, the theology of the anomalous or something like that, right? I can't remember exactly the word they used, but that's the idea is that that we have to we have to develop a way of thinking about this and talking about this that is not simply about just landing on one side or the other. And, and within the Orthodox tradition, there is warrant to do that, right? So, you know, looking at it from the canonical position, the question often in the canons is essentially, how do you receive non-Orthodox Christians into the Orthodox Church? That's the question the canons are largely asking. They're not generally asking, what is our view of people or outside the Orthodox Church who are not coming here, right? That's not the question being asked by the canons. The question is, is a very practical pastoral one. What do we do when they show up at our door and want to be part of our church? And the fact is they treat different kinds of people differently, right? So if someone is a, a Jew, then we receive them as a non-Christian because that's what they are. They're a non-Christian. But if someone is a Christian of some kind, then kind of depending on where they fall on the continuum, and there's no clear theory about this in the canons, actually. They never lay out a kind of system for this. Um, then they might be received possibly by baptism, like a non-Christian, but then they also might be received by chrismation, because 
something of what they have is recognized, not in and of itself, but in the context of them coming. And then some are received simply by a profession of faith. And in the ancient church, you know, they often had to sign a paper that basically said, I will no longer believe or teach the following heresy that I used to believe and teach. Right. That's in the canons here that they had to sign a document saying that's behind me now. Right. So based on the Orthodox tradition, I believe that it's uh, perfectly reasonable to have a kind of complex view of the way that we connect with other Christians and to withhold judgment in terms of what that means in terms of their salvation. I can't say absolutely for certain that I will be among the saved at the end of time. How can I possibly lay down judgment on someone whose life I don't really even know and and certainly don't don't share right so so yeah it's it's a complicated question and while it's really easy and tempting to try to kind of come down on one end or the other of the continuum i don't think for orthodox christians that that's actually faithful to our tradition thank you for that nuance there and i think there's a lot of pastoral wisdom throughout that in that kind of recognition of both sides of it, the, the separated and recognizing like these differences were of huge impact historically. Like people have died over these issues. Let's not just yeah. paint with broad brush over them, but also recognizing the brethren aspect. And I think for a lot of people, that's going to be difficult because it's easier to go a hundred percent on one side than the other. There's a bit of tension to hold both of those. Um, but I, it's often in those moments. Um, yeah. We, can I add one more thing? Yeah, about that, go for it. Yeah, so there's this beautiful, I can't remember the the, uh, um, the reference right off the top of my head, but there's this beautiful piece of an oration by St. Gregory the Theologian in which he addresses himself to, um, to non-Trinitarian Christians, right? So they're not even Trinitarians who believe in, in regular, Christ, you know, Orthodox Christology. They're non-Trinitarians, people who do not believe that the Holy Spirit is God. In, in this particular case, he addresses himself to them and he, he makes this list of all these things he loves and admires about them, you know, and it's not just that they're good people or whatever. Like he, he loves the fact that they, they, they stand long vigils in worship. He loves their asceticism. He loves their love for Christ. Right. And then he even at one point says, I would even be willing to, to, you know, take on the apostle Paul's wish that I could set aside my own salvation for you right? If only you would stand with us, if only you would come back and be part of us. Like that's the heart that he expresses. Like, so on the one hand, he recognizes that there is this, this separation and that it's a problem, right? He, he, it's part of that oration. He says, there's a one or two things that, that are a problem here, you know, but on the other hand, it's clear that his motivation is to be in communion with these people and that he's willing to do whatever it takes to, to have that communion, not founded on a kind of erasing of differences, but but trying to draw them in by whatever means he can, even so far as to say that he's willing to give up his own salvation for them. Uh, that is that is the spirit that I um, I hope to achieve at some point in my life. That's a really powerful example. I appreciate you bringing that up. And you know, my my channel attracts a lot of converts who were previously. Protestant and then ended up and mainly evangelical end up going becoming Orthodox or becoming Catholic and for many of them I think part of that conversion process involves this kind of detachment from where they were at before which makes sense but then sometimes it seems to go down on healthy roads of just wanting to demonize everything that they were at before which while disagreeing with it I think sometimes it can land heavily on that separated side we can get into that more a bit later but I I appreciate the nuance that you bring to this question and also the heart posture that you brought up there uh, from Gregory the theologian 
I want to talk a bit about the relationship between Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism because, again, for a lot of people on my channel, either they were Protestant and have gone down one of those roads, or they're actively considering that. And I, I see a trend that for a lot of people, they kind of investigate Orthodoxy, give like a half a second look at Roman Catholicism, and like, nope, not for me, going down the Orthodox road, or vice versa. But then others, like, they really try to dig their teeth into both of these and there's a lot there, and it's there's a lot to investigate. And uh, right. speaking in first person, that's complicated. Uh, trying to sort the differences between the two. Uh, for you, like, what do you see as the relationship between Orthodox and Roman Catholics? Um, is that primarily of like con- like very similar, couple things apart, but like we've got the the main things together, or is it the opposite? Because again, this is something that I get kind of two different answers on, it seems. Yeah. Again, it depends on what angle you're looking at it from, right? So, um, like, for instance, if you look at our Christology, Orthodox Christianity and Roman Catholicism seem to have essentially the same Christology. Um, I'll hedge with my comment there a little bit just because I don't want to get anyone say, whoa, did you see this part of the catechism or whatever? They seem essentially the same Christology, right? And um, certainly there are problems with triadology. You know, there's the filioque clause that was added to the creed. Um, but for the, for the average Orthodox Christian and the average Roman Catholic, those things I think are kind of abstruse and it's not that they don't matter. They super do like they really do matter. Again, councils were called people have died. I mean, I can't just say, well, you know, that was all a big mistake, you know, and because I don't think that it was, right? Um, but the thing that is the biggest thing, the biggest difference now has come down to worship, right? And um, and and it's it's really really expressed itself, especially in the last fifty years, um, with the the major change that happened in Roman Catholic Church, Church the Roman Catholic Church following the Second Vatican Council, right? Now, I mean, that's a complex issue in and of itself, and it's like really kind of hot topic right now with the change that Pope Francis recently made in the traditional Latin Mass and when and how it's allowed to be celebrated. But that just highlights this issue, right? So, you know, it's it's true that the way that the Roman Catholic worship was actually reformed was not uh, simply following what the Second Vatican Council said, actually. And there are numerous cases of, of abuses that one can find. Just surf around on YouTube for a little while and you can find, you know, a priest wearing a Barney the Purple Dinosaur costume and serving the mass, right? And, you know, faithful Roman Catholics would look at that and say, that's an abuse. That's, that's not what we're supposed to be doing, right? But the fact that it happens so often and that it's not really cracked down on in any really significant way sends a message to the Orthodox, right? It sends the message that, that worship does not mean the same thing to a Roman Catholic Christian that it does to an Orthodox Christian. Certainly there are a lot of exceptions. I would say I would probably have a similar feeling about worship that someone who, who's really dedicated to the traditional Latin mass, the way they feel about that. And maybe a lot of Eastern Catholics, for instance, uh, whose worship is by and large very similar to Orthodox worship. But again, both of those groups are a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of the whole Catholic church. I mean, Eastern Catholics are literally only 1.5% of the entire population of the Catholic Church, right? Um, so, so speaking generally, this is true. 
and I've been to a number of, of uh, Roman Catholic services and they strike me often as being very kind of casual and um, that frankly, that Lutheran services I've been to are, are often more reverential. Um, now, again, there's a continuum for both, <laughs> you know, both can be done well, both can be done badly and, and so forth. Um, but, but that's the thing that I think that really strikes the Orthodox most strongly. And, you know, the, this recent declaration from Pope Francis about um, the, the traditional Latin mass actually underlines this problem, not just because he seems to be really limiting the traditional Latin mass, right? But because he actually said in his document that the, the, the new mass, the Novus Ordo, is the unique Lex Orandi of the Latin rite, meaning it is the unique expression of the that whole part of the Catholic Church, which again is 98 plus percent of the Catholic Church, right? Which means that by his will, he can essentially redefine what Catholic worship means, right? Now, there are certainly a lot of Roman Catholics that would disagree with him. You can't just do that, right? But um, uh, not enough to really make a difference. Um, the fact that a reform was implemented, that this radical change happened, indicates that it is something that can be simply taken in hand. And so the idea that worship is part of a tradition that we simply owe obedience to, rather than something that can be kind of made and remade in the hands of one person, um, that is a massive difference for the Orthodox, right? Worship is supposed to mold you, not be something that you mold. Right. So uh, that I would say is probably the biggest thing. There are a lot of other things that I could point to. Private devotions, for instance, are, are quite different between the two churches. Um, there are a lot of theological issues. You could we could talk about legalism. You know, uh, we could talk about satisfaction, soteriology. All this stuff is really important. Right. I'm not going to brush any of it aside. But I think the thing that is the most sort of viscerally impactful for the Orthodox is the, the way that worship is held by the Roman Catholic Church. There are certainly places you can go where it is done very reverentially and very, you know, very dignified way. But then you can also see videos, for instance, of massive public events with multiple bishops where the music is exactly like you'd find in any kind of not very edgy, cutting edge evangelical church. Like it's a little bit behind that. Um, and there's liturgical dance and costumes and big puppets and this kind of thing is happening in not just in the presence of multiple bishops, but with their blessing, right? That's horrifying for the Orthodox to see that kind of thing. So I would say that that's the biggest issue, really, in terms of what the 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 the, the feeling of separation comes. I think most strongly from that. That's that's fascinating to me, and it strikes me. And as an outsider, I don't really have the authority to say this, but as a very orthodox answer, because just the views of worship that I've encountered and the two do seem different. I, when I encounter, especially like Catholic apologists, it's very much doctrine, 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 not to say that orthodox don't care about doctrine, certainly. Um, but the the aspects of the liturgy and the interplay of how worship affects our theology seems a lot stronger in orthodox circles for the most part. You know, I've been to incredible Catholic masses. I, at, when I'm at school, I'm down the street from St. John Cantius, where they celebrate the traditional Latin mass, and it's stunning. But the focus on liturgy has really been something that's stood out to me as I've 
investigated orthodoxy. And so that, that's interesting to hear you pull that one out. And what I what I like about that, and maybe this is you know, neither here nor there, but that it has a practical impact. Because like you said, filioque, these different things, important. But I think for the average person, my channel attracts a lot of theological nerds that I love, and I say that with all affection. I'm one of them too. But for the average person, trying to decipher how something like the filioque really impacts their life can often seem like it's theologians with too much time on their hands just endlessly bickering about something. I don't think it's that, but it can appear that way. But focusing on the liturgy gets to something that's going to impact people's daily life. Now, I want to ask one follow-up question with that, though, because I can imagine some Catholics listening to this and saying, now, wait a minute, surely there's some bad Orthodox services out there and they're going to pull up YouTube and then maybe type in a clip and like, see, look at this Orthodox priest dancing or doing something strange. What would you say is the main difference? Is it that it has the sanction with multiple bishops? Is that kind of what you were getting at there as well? Um, I, I would say that that's really significant for one thing, that there's no crackdown, right? The Orthodox are so liturgically focused that if we were to see a priest dancing around in an Orthodox church, which I've never seen a video like that. Now, maybe it is out there. Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, I've seen some videos of, of clergy that I look at them and going, what are they doing exactly? But the parameters within which that happens are quite different. You know, there is not uh, this huge room for kind of self-expression that is expected in the norm within Protestantism, within a lot of Protestantism, and is permitted significantly within Roman Catholicism. So, so yeah, the, the, the fact of the sanction is a, a major piece. Um, the other thing I would say would be that um, there is a big difference between, um, frankly, book Roman Catholicism and the actual on-the-ground experience of it that most Roman Catholics have. I've known more than one person, for instance, who became enamored of Roman Catholic doctrine and sort of, and, but then simply could not find that at a parish anywhere, right? Um, whereas, um, you know, with, with Orthodox Christianity, um, worship is really where the rubber meets the road. Worship is not an expression of doctrine. It is what it means to be Christian in the core, core sense. Doctrine is a way of teaching about the things that we do and believe, the person whom we encounter, the persons we encounter as Christians, right? So, so you know, prior to, you know, in, in the ancient world, for instance, the idea of sort of systematic theology was not even a thing. And yet people were still truly the children of God if they were part of the people of God, right? And I'm not saying that that means that we should be anti-intellectual or that doctrine does not matter. I mean, the very, the introduction of one of my books is titled literally Doctrine Matters, right? So I super believe that doctrine matters and I spend a lot of time talking about it, right? But the question is, in what way does it matter? How does it matter? How does it actually, you know, uh, impact your daily life, right? And so that's why I think when Orthodox Christians see weird things in Roman Catholic churches, um, like, you know, liturgical puppets and dancing and this kind of thing, then it's very easy for us to believe that's what their doctrine is about. Because, uh, you know, if... If, if it's not what it's about, how can that possibly, like, how can this contradiction remain, right? But I think that there is good reason to believe that on a kind of unofficial level that that is what the doctrine is about, you know, that there's that there has become this kind of anthropocentric approach 
in Roman Catholic worship. Not as strong as a lot of evangelical Protestantism, for sure. But there's a big difference when, for instance, the priest who was leading the people of God in the direction of God ad orientum turns around and faces them the whole time. That's a big, big difference. And it might seem, oh, we're just trying to be more welcoming or whatever. But it it, it says something very, very visceral about what your worship means and what it's about and what it accomplishes. We're gonna be right back to the video. But before we do that, I just wanna say a huge thank you to one of our sponsors today, Kindred. Kindred is a ministry that exists to help people reclaim sacred time with God in their daily lives. And I don't know about you, but I think that's something that we could all use more of, slowing down and enjoying time with God. And to help you do this, they create these beautiful Bibles. They've got full page illustrations, beautiful text layouts that will cause you to read differently. You're going to slow down. You're going to read a bit more contemplatively. And I think for people like me, it helps me maybe get out of my head a bit, get into my heart more as I read. And it really does wonders for my time with God and my Bible study. If you're looking for something like that, I'd encourage you to check them out. You can go to kindredapostle.com. And if you go there, be sure to use the promo code gospel10 for 10% off your order. I would love for you to check them out. And with that being said, back to the video. It does. And it's been a probably slower than it should be journey of trying to get my head around that. Because again, as someone who grew up in kind of like evangelical megachurch, it's not even really a question we're asking, even though how we worship says something about what we believe and shapes what we believe. But that's not what we're thinking. It's okay. We've got people coming in who don't go to church. How do we, and I don't want to belittle it because I, I think there's good aspects of it. How do we entertain them? How do we get them drawn in? But we're not thinking that connects to our theology, but it certainly does. And I think you're right. Even if that's not where the official theology is, what you see in a service is going to shape how your people think. And it's also going to be a reflection of what's being thought. Um, And so with that in mind, what do you see when you look at Protestants? Now, of course, that's there's there's no like one Protestant that that's a wide variety and I imagine part of the difficulty or problem uh, from an Orthodox perspective but do you see it as like it, we're talking you know continuity and discontinuity with Roman Catholics there when you get to Protestants is like that's even just further away because I've surprisingly even heard different answers on this <laughs> that no we actually seem closer together than Catholics and most people saying like no, like that's just weird, whatever you guys are doing. Yeah. I mean, again, I, this is going to probably seem like a, a, a broken record my saying this, but it, it's the question is in what way, right? From what angle are you looking at it? Right. So, um, you know, I, I, I recently um, at my house, we often get my neighbor's mail because he has a very similar address to us just a few blocks away. And uh, today I noticed that we got a magazine called Word of Faith magazine. Now that is Kenneth Hagen Ministries right there. And uh, what do I have in common with those particular Pentecostal charismatic people who believe in the prosperity gospel, right? Um, certainly in as much as they believe in the prosperity gospel, I kind of recoil in horror. But in as much as they desire the love and the healing of God, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, in as much as they, they really emphasize knowing the scripture, which they really do. That makes a lot of sense to me too. So even though I have huge differences with word faith Pentecostalism, there's still things that um, I can connect with them on, and often on a deeper level than I would with Roman Catholics, right? Um, you know, so I mean, the love of Scripture would be probably the easiest one to point to. It's not that Roman Catholics don't read the Bible, but 
for the average one, it's just not as important to them as it is to your average low church Protestant, for instance. Right. Um, and, you know, so again, it, it kind of depends on what kind of Protestants you're talking about. Uh, certainly the ones that believe in traditional Christology and triadology, I notice that that makes a difference in our conversations and the sense that we have a commonality. It, it does make a difference, not just because I say, okay, show me your, show me your Christology and your triadology. You know, it's that the God whom they worship, uh, I recognize as the God that I worship. Now, I know that some people would say, oh, we don't really have the same God or whatever. Um, but there is only one God and Father of all, right? There is only one Holy Trinity. And if someone says, I believe in three persons in one essence, and someone says, I believe in the one person of Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man, I'm not going to say, well, you're not in the right, you know, you, you don't live in the right boundaries. So clearly you have no idea what you're talking about, right? You know, I believe that that whatever it is that someone believes and practices that is faithful to what the apostles taught, that that is going to have a positive impact in them. Now, I, I don't have the ability to completely define exactly what that impact is going to be, right? Whether that means that they'll be among the saved at the end of time, whether that means that maybe someday they're going to want to become an Orthodox Christian. You know, I, I don't I don't know, right? Because I'm not omniscient and I don't read minds. Um, so yeah, it, it just, it just depends so much. Um, and even sometimes within a denomination, like one of my really good friends that I host the, the Areopagus with, he is someone that I agree with a lot about, right. With him. And yet the denomination he's part of, I have almost nothing in common with them. You know, he, he is more Orthodox than he is that denomination, you know, from my point of view. And I think he would probably agree with that actually, but the church that he serves is more like that too. You know, the, you know, so, so it's, it's just so complicated. Protestantism is such a massive number of different kinds of movements and, and just, there's just huge, huge uh, continuum, you know, between all of them. So, so for me, you know, I, I can talk about denominations, but I'm really most interested in the person I'm in front of. What do you believe? Tell me about the Christ whom you know, how do you worship? How do you pray? Tell me how you engage with scripture, you know, those kinds of things. So, you know, with, with Rome, um, it would seem easier at least because there's there's a clear official line about a lot of things. But even then, people openly disagree with the Pope and say that he's not being faithful to Catholic tradition. So which is it, you know? So even then, there is still that, that variety and, and the kind of moving target uh, within what looks like a big monolithic organization, you know, centered at the Vatican. Um, you know, Protestants have the... I don't know, advantage, I guess, of not being monolithic in that I think it's a lot easier for me to just say, okay, tell me about you and what you believe and what you practice, which, I mean, I would say indicates a kind of failure of ecclesiology on their part that there's so much that's very individualized, but at the same time, you know, makes it so that that kind of relationship is a little bit more possible in some ways. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's some Protestants that I barely would recognize them as Christian and in some cases would not recognize them as Christian. Right. And then there's others that um, I very much have that sense that we worship the same Christ and that we, we love the same father, son, and Holy spirit. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's various. <laughs> it's very various. And I think that the answer would have to be for such a, a wide group of people. And I, I, as we begin to shift gears to talk about orthodoxy specifically, I just want to say thank you, first of all, for being willing to field these questions, because I recognize these aren't necessarily 
easy questions and that there's a wide variety of answers, but there also can be uncomfortable topics to talk on when you're talking about other groups. And so I just appreciate you being willing to walk through these things because I know it's helpful for me and I think it's going to be helpful for others as well. So I just want to honor that. As we transition, I want to talk about the way that evangelicals in some way are at least shaping orthodoxy. And that might sound strange, but there's so many, at least in my experience of my channel, which is a limited thing, so many evangelicals that I've seen converting to orthodoxy. Given that orthodoxy isn't that populous in America, um, that seems like it would have to have some impact as you kind of have a at least somewhat shifting demographic of what was previously a church driven by, you know, I'm projecting here, but I'm guessing immigrants at one point coming into America, bringing their faith with them. And then now this kind of movement of evangelicals into the Orthodox Church. What impact do you think that's having on Orthodoxy? That is much debated within Orthodoxy, um, you know, within Orthodoxy in America. I, I think in other places in the world, they, it's probably not even on their radar. Because the truth is that the Orthodox Christians of America, we're a minority here, but we're also a minority within the Orthodox Church. Like at best, there might be a close to a million Orthodox Christians who are going to church on something of a regular basis here in the United States. Um, you can sometimes hear much bigger figures, but every actual measurement we've done of it, you know, it's either that or less. Um, compared to worldwide Orthodox Christianity, it's not even 1%. We're very small <laughs> by comparison, but we're, you know, we're even smaller of a minority here in America. So, you know, it, it is debated. And there are some people who, who will say, for instance, that there's a kind of uh, political impact. But I would say that the people who say that politics is more important to them than it really needs to be, uh, frankly, is, is, is my impression. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that there is, there certainly is an emphasis amongst evangelicals on evangelistic work, right? And that cannot help but have had an impact on Orthodox churches in America. Um, and sometimes you'll hear some people who are raised Orthodox, they see that as a problem, right? Like, hey, this is not our way. You know, we don't have that kind of spirit. We don't, we don't, we don't go around asking people to become Orthodox, right? Um, and yet the truth is that that um, is simply a recovery of a part, a major part of Orthodox tradition that had been being neglected, right? So the idea of being evangelistic is not something that was invented by Protestants. <laughs> you know, we have a huge history of missionary activity in the Orthodox Church, starting with the apostles. I mean, I shouldn't even have to mention any after that. But nonetheless, um, you know, we, we do have this long and beautiful history of missionary activity in the Orthodox Church. And so in some ways, what evangelical converts are doing is reminding those here of that element of Orthodox tradition, that major element of Orthodox tradition, right? Part of what complicates the, the process is that the vast majority of Orthodox Christian people in traditionally Orthodox countries for the last century, you know, a lot of the last century, and then for centuries before that, in some cases, were under domination by non-Orthodox powers. You know, so for instance, the Ottoman Empire, uh, comprising a huge amount of the Orthodox population for centuries upon centuries. And when you look at like the Middle East, the Middle East, the Orthodox Christians there have been under Muslim rule for 1300 years. That is a very, very long time. Right. And then, of course, much of the 20th century, the Orthodox Christians of Eastern Europe, especially Russia, 
under not just another religion, but under atheistic slaughter, right? And so as a result of these kinds of historical pressures, uh, there came to be a kind of, of, in many cases, huddling in the corner that happened with a lot of Orthodox communities. And the idea of evangelism was a scary thing to bring up because in many cases it can mean you get killed, right? And so as a result, not many people are going to sign up for that. Um, some did. Some absolutely did. Um, some were killed just because they remained faithful, say nothing about being evangelistic. Um, so, so yeah, there has been an impact on evangelicals coming into the church. It's debatable as to how big it is. Um, you know, there are whole churches that are, you know, that, that, that are constituted mainly of former evangelicals, but they're not that many and they're not that large. Uh, the vast majority of Orthodox Christians in America are still people who are raised Orthodox, um, you know, especially in the Northeast where I live. Um, not as much when you get into the South and West, but that still exists there. And uh, so, so you know, I, I know some people are concerned, for instance, the idea that that uh, converts bringing in doctrines that are foreign to the Orthodox Church and trying to alter it as a result, you know. But again, the question I always would ask people who make that criticism is, what does the tradition actually show, right? So, for instance, there are people within the Orthodox Church who uh, are in favor of the revision of our moral theology. And they'll say, oh, all these evangelicals are ruining things, whatever. But the truth is, if you actually look at the the witnesses to Orthodox tradition, the scriptures, the divine services, the canons of the church, the writings of the church fathers, it's pretty clear that that the, the moral revisionism that they desire is the contradiction. You know, the fact that they lean in that direction does not mean that that's what Orthodox Christianity is. So in, in many cases, um, converts are helping people to recall faithfulness and to recover it. That doesn't mean there aren't problems, right, with, with people who convert to the Orthodox Church. Uh, there is, you know, the term convertitis is something that's, that's used a lot and actually means something. There is a, a big problem with people who are recent converts setting themselves up as teachers of the faith and even, you know, going on the Internet and, and amassing massive followings of people. You know, people who have no no business setting themselves up as authorities, who have no experience really of being Orthodox Christians, uh, maybe done a lot of reading, but uh, and maybe the things that they say are correct, but the spirit with which they convey it is problematic. So, so yes, there are there are uh, pluses and minuses. I would say that that conversions from evangelicalism or from wherever else, frankly, that that call Orthodox communities back to their own tradition, that that's a great thing. Uh, that that ones that bring in a, a spirit foreign to uh, Orthodox Christian spirituality, that's a problem and needs to be dealt with pastorally, right? And, uh, you know, I've had the experience of, of, of all of those things as in my years as a pastor and now as a professional communicator of the Orthodox faith. So, yeah, I'm not going to pretend it's all rosy. It's not all rosy. There's some, some big problems. We have some big problems, uh, you know, and... Uh, uh, that's okay. That's because that just means we have some repenting to do. <laughs> you know, this is what we do in the Orthodox Church is repent. So it's not like we expect people like when they come in the door to not have any repenting left to do. You know, that's well said. I want to dig into that a, a little bit. And I think it was from you. I don't I think it was on your podcast. That I first heard the term interdoxy. Was that you? And yeah, interdoxy, internet. Yeah, there's all kinds okay. of, of Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about, and you started to hint at this, the, the impact of the internet on orthodoxy, especially in America, because that's all that I've experienced it. 
we this is related to the last question because a lot of the loudest internet voices generally seem to be converts and a lot of converts come from evangelical circles but it it seems that there's a lot of passion and that a lot of people are encountering uh orthodoxy via the internet and you do a lot of communicating of orthodoxy from the internet so i imagine you see positive and negative negative things happening there i'd like to talk about that a bit but there's one dynamic specifically that i'd like to ask about that i've noticed at least on the internet and that is this dynamic of kind of drawing the bounds of what is orthodox or who is orthodox tighter and tighter to the point of like if you don't agree with palamas on this one point in this one esoteric writing then you're definitely not orthodox or something like that yeah have you seen this dynamic and where do you think that's coming from <laughs> yes i have <laughs> over and over um number one that does not come from an orthodox spirit orthodox christianity is not a correctness cult um there are people who treat it that way right that it is about a kind of um as a friend of mine puts it as a big sort of spreadsheet and you have to fill out all the cells with the correct answers and that's what it means to be orthodox that's not what it means to be orthodox right what it means to be an orthodox christian is to be part of the church and to to be repenting to have put on christ to be pursuing the life in christ that's what it means to be a truly an orthodox christian right if agreeing with every single thing and in a particular interpretation of every single thing that every single church father has ever said setting aside the problem that actually only a minority of the church father's material has been translated into english most of the people making these comments do not even read the original languages right um, uh, you know, the vast majority of Orthodox Christians throughout history did not even have the option of being right or wrong about those things. They didn't have access to any of that. You know, most of those writings were not even written for them, right? Doesn't mean those writings aren't important. They're super important. But if we try to hang the definition of what it means to be an Orthodox Christian on that kind of thing, we're actually not being faithful to what those the people, those saints who wrote those things, the way they actually functioned, right? Remember, for instance, that 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 uh, oration of Saint Gregory the Theologian that I mentioned earlier. You know, he says yes. There's one or two things that you you um, people who don't believe in the divinity of the Holy Spirit. There's one or two things that you have really wrong, right? And yet, at the same time, he was trying to bring them within his communion. Right. Another classic example, for instance, is St. Basil the Great, who um, I think it was the Emperor uh, Valens came to him for communion. At the time, the emperor was a semi Aryan. And Basil didn't say, Now, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. You're a semi Aryan. Uh, you need to sign off on this confession of faith before I'm going to receive you into communion. Basil communed him, which would be a controversial thing, I think, for a lot of these uh, defenders of, of Orthodox Christianity that exist on the internet. Um, I'm not saying that I should, you know, we should open the doors to all semi-Aryans and just say, come on, we, we want you all to commune. You know, it's, there's no problem here. But, but the point is, is that someone like St. Basil the Great, who had the highest level of education and who understood doctrine extremely well and was perfectly Orthodox in all things, if he could see um, some, some space to uh, take someone who was believing in heresy and to receive him into communion and to remain in communion with him, then I think that this quest for drawing lines is uh, a, a very, very problematic one. And 
part of the problem, of course, is that the vast majority of the people who are spending their time drawing these lines are totally unqualified to be making those judgments. It's, it's bishops in synod who are qualified to make these judgments in the Orthodox Church. Now, that doesn't mean that lay people can't write about theology and can't even refute heresy and whatever else. But it's not their task to say, this person's in, this one's out, let's have a big debate. And at the end, you know, like, I don't even know what comes of a lot of these debates. Is, is the idea that there's going to be this call for excommunication of the person who loses it? I, I don't know, you know. Um, I, I, where does it come from? So you asked that question. <clears throat> I think that there's two places it comes from. Um, one is a kind of ideology, and the other is, I think, a, a sort of psychology, right? So ideologically speaking, this way of functioning in theology, which is not Orthodox Christian, is actually a kind of post-enlightenment approach to theology, right? It's those famous 19th century German theologians who believe that theology is a kind of, of hard science, that if you apply the correct formulas to the correct texts, then you get a certain result, right? Um, and so if that's your way of thinking, then someone who doesn't have exactly the same result as you, obviously they're a heretic or they're out of the church or, or whatever else it means, right? So, so that way of thinking is not actually an Orthodox Christian way of thinking. That doesn't mean that there's not right and wrong and that there's not heresy and orthodoxy, right? The psychological place that I believe it's coming from is that as Christendom continues to crumble, and actually it's pretty well crumbled by now, I would say, um, as as the as the the rubble now turns to dust, <laughs> whatever metaphor you want to use, um, there's a lot of uncertainty that's going on in the world, and there's a lot of sense that every single truth claim that's being made can be questioned and contested. We see that all the time, you know, even in our, especially I would say in our politics, where even bare facts are just simply not agreed upon, not just interpretation of facts, but what are the facts? Is it A or B, you know? Um, as the world goes more and more in this direction, I think that there is a need for something that feels solid and right and steady. I, I totally get that. And it makes complete sense to me. And so some people try to fulfill that need by correctness, right? That's the way that they fulfill the need, that their religion is about being right. And you can often see this in the way that they approach these things, that they spend most of their time criticizing other people, that often there's a lot of anger, often there's a lot of one-upsmanship, right? Um, I, I even saw one actually posting on, on social media, for instance, one time that he was literally walking around some college campus or seminary campus looking for someone to debate, just like looking for this, right? Seeking it out. I want to defeat someone, right? And this is not <laughs> the mind of Christ, this is not the spirit of the saints, right? The saints do contend with heretical teachings when called upon to do so and when it's within their competency to do so, right? But the, the bigger witness of what the saints do in the face of false teaching is to suffer. They are much more likely to suffer in the face of false teaching than to go on a kind of crusade to defeat the infidels, right? Um, so, so it is a problem, um, you know, that, that this kind of boundary drawing, that doesn't mean there aren't boundaries, 
right? But um, a, a lot of what's going on publicly on the internet is simply not Orthodox Christianity and and misrepresents it. You know, when someone encounters someone who's been Orthodox for less time less time than my four year old toddler has been, uh, and they're out there presenting themselves as an expert in Orthodox Christian faith, or in some cases, for instance, people who are actually ordained clergy who will refuse to answer who their bishop is, which I actually know of at least one example of that. Someone who's online teaching the Orthodox faith, presenting as a clergyman, will not say who his bishop is. That should be a big red flag, you know? And especially if if the spirit is mainly of anger and criticism and a kind of caustic, acidic approach, that should also be a big red flag. I'm not saying that Orthodox Christianity is a sort of niceness religion. It's not. But but when the whole thing is acidic and there's none of that sense of, I desire to win brethren rather than to destroy enemies, then, then that's not the spirit of Christ. It's not the spirit of Christ. Even some of the most famous kind of apologists that are among the Orthodox saints, like, like um, St. Mark of Ephesus, who is known for kind of facing off Roman Catholicism, you know, in the 15th century. Um, he actually very explicitly said, now look, we need to get together and talk about this stuff so that we can work it out. On the one hand, he says, yes, we are separate from Rome because of heresy. Like he's very explicit about that. But on the other hand, he says, we need to come together and come to an agreement, you know, we because we desire to be in communion. It's not about, and he even says, it's not about defeating enemies, but about winning brethren. And it's it's very clear you can you can you can get lost in a complicated labyrinth of arguments, but it's instantly clear within the first few seconds whether the person desires to win brethren or to defeat enemies. That's instantly clear, and anyone can see that without hardly any theological training or none usually. That's a really good tool for discernment there. That that difference there, winning brethren or defeating enemies, and I, I appreciate your perspective on this. And it's something I've seen in my limited experience. I, I do a lot of work on the internet and I see one tone there and then getting to attend an Orthodox parish uh, right by my school in Chicago and going to the coffee hour and meeting people who have been Orthodox for like 40, 50, 60 years and hearing them talk about Orthodoxy as this way of life and the doctrine being important. But I, I don't hear the, the conversation seemed very different between the two for me. Um, and, and yeah. also the posture that you talk about there and kind of like yeah. the spirit of it. Yeah, I'm, I wanna... I'm, I'm aware. I was going to say, I, I'm aware of some online internet apologists who do not even attend church. And the reason I know that is because Orthodoxy in America is a very small world. And so as a result, the likelihood that I know their priest is pretty high, or I'm at least one hop away, right? Uh there are some who do not even attend church and present themselves as teachers of Orthodox Christianity, even people with some big degrees, um, you know, who, with PhDs, you know, um, that that's a huge problem. <laughs> yes, it would certainly seem so. I'm so grateful for your time today. I want to respect that. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I want to close with two quick things just because I, I don't want to end on necessarily a somber note for you. So the first thing <laughs> is for people listening to this, for instance, I go to school in Chicago. There's like three Orthodox churches within a block of me. Like they're everywhere. It's easy to find them. For a lot of people, that's not the case. The internet is one of their only ways of encountering Orthodoxy and they're really interested by it, but they they don't want to be misled and they, they want to do this right, but they might not know how. 
So for the first question, what would you recommend for those people? I imagine the first recommendation, if possible, would be to go to a parish. But for those trying to sift through the much more than three weeks worth of content about orthodoxy <laughs> online today, do you have any recommendations for them? The the suggestion I always give to people is go to the Orthodox church that is closest to your house. Go to that church. Uh, that should be the very first stop. It doesn't matter what kind of uh, adjectives are on the sign, you know. Uh, if it's an Orthodox church and it's truly a canonical Orthodox church, go there. And um, the next thing that I often will say as a kind of um, uh, qualifier for that is if they do not speak the, a language that you understand, then it might be a good idea to go to the next nearest one, right? Um, because because language can be... Now, there's some people, for instance, that can go to the, the Orthodox church closest to them and they don't speak the langu language and it might be totally foreign but they still connect for whatever reason, you know, um, great, you know, um, that's why I always say start with the first and not just start with the first that speaks your language, start with the one that's closest to your home. And I, I would also add this, a lot of the, the conversation around how to find a church or how to choose a church, right? Uh, not just choose among Orthodox churches, but choose among churches, among religions. A lot of that assumes that the whole thing exists sort of on a purely earthly realm. You know, that that it's just a matter of me making the right decision based on information and evidence and arguments and whatever else, right? And I, I wonder sometimes, like, is God actually involved in this decision in any way? Um, is the fact that you live closest to this one particular church, not important, you know, because it doesn't fit what's in your head about what this ought to be, right? Uh, I mean, it's kind of bizarre, actually, to see people who are not even Orthodox Christians who are making choices on which Orthodox church to attend first based on the idea of which one is the most Orthodox. Like, how can you even tell? Like, you, you, there's no way you, you know, you're not equipped to tell uh, as someone who's who's actually not part of the Orthodox Christian life. Um, you know, um, so I, I firmly believe that, that God himself is involved in people's, um, conversions, right? That God himself is involved in people's lives and that the biggest thing that people should do should be prayer, right? To actually earnestly reach towards God. Maybe your prayer is not perfect. Maybe you don't know all the, the truth, all the history, all the whatever. Okay. I'm not saying it's magical. Like if you just say a prayer, then, you know, you can just, flip a phone book. Do people even have phone books anymore? Flip a phone book and then put your finger on something or whatever. I, I'm not saying that, you know, like it's a kind of magic, but, but I think that there needs to be a sense that, that trust in God and faithfulness towards God needs to be a major piece of what it is you're doing. People live in their heads way too much these days. And especially I think uh, during the the pandemic and the, the the time following it, people are living even more in their heads and the internet becomes reality to them. Now the internet is part of reality. It's not, not a thing. It, it's definitely a thing, um, but it's not reality in its fullness. And it's certainly not Christianity. It's not Christianity. Christianity is about a life in Christ, worshiping, repenting, praying, alms, you know, that's, and if that is really true, then that means that, that God is involved and it needs to be not just a kind of mental journey where you're looking at a bunch of evidence, trying to decide between things. There has to be 
the guidance of the Holy Spirit within that. And I know some Orthodox would be horrified at my saying that, like, no, 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 all the evidence points towards Orthodoxy, right? But the truth is, is that I've known people who look at the same evidence that I have, who are sincere, who are intelligent, and who are well-informed, and who make a different decision than I did. That doesn't mean I agree with the decision that they made, but it does mean that we can't assume that everyone that decides differently from me is either uh, too stupid to make the right decision, too ignorant to make the right decision, or has some ulterior motive against making the right decision, right? Um, so, so my 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 suggestion for people is is you know do a lot of prayer, seek out Christ, have that be what's in your heart when you go. Not, oh, does this look right according to all the things I've read? You know, uh, because if you're not in the church for Christ, you're there for some other reason. And if you're there for some other reason, then that means that you're actually doing something very dangerous, right? Now, that doesn't mean that Christ cannot take someone who comes for some other reason and transform them and give them a conversion experience. He absolutely can and absolutely does, right? But if it's me, if the question is, what am I going to do? Then I need to be seeking Christ and not some other agenda because it's all about Christ. That's the whole purpose of the Orthodox Christian faith. It is all about Christ. It's not about anything but Christ, right? All of the other things that people kind of tend to analyze and really spend so much time on, they're important, but they all flow from that, right? I've known people that can say all the right things and yet about Christ. And yet it's very clear to me that they do not know him, right? So, so that's the advice that I would give people is seek Christ in your home before you go, you know, where you find him, where you truly encounter Christ, be there, be there. Wow. That's, I really appreciate that. And I, I take that to heart for me and I hope that others do as well. That's a very pastoral word and a very just encouraging message uh, to, to wrap up with there. I do want you to uh, let people know where they can find you. And we have kind of titled this conversation, Why Be Orthodox? So I would love to allow you to kind of close with essentially your elevator pitch for that, which is is wrapped up in all of what you've just said, uh, but also to let them know where they can find your work, because I'm sure they'll be interested in seeing more if they're not already familiar with it. Right. Um, it's funny for being a professional communicator, I, I have no elevator speech for Why Be Orthodox? And I think it's because I've thought about it for too long. Um, a lot of people might say, well, the history proves, you know, the Orthodox Church is the true church. Um, but that doesn't answer the question of why should I be in a church at all? Right. And I think that's the much more important question. And so I would simply just reiterate what I just said. Seek Christ. Seek Christ. I believe that Christ shines most clearly and fully within the Orthodox tradition. I cannot say that people outside of the Orthodox, the canonical boundaries of the Orthodox Church do not know Christ or have any contact with Christ at all. I don't believe that because Christ is, is uh, the Lord of all creation and he's working in every single human heart to bring them all to him, right? So um, why be Orthodox? The, the reason to be Orthodox is for Christ and for no other reason. These other things are important questions and can help clear away confusion and can help us to uh, feel at peace about questions that arise in our hearts, right? But ultimately, it's about seeking out Christ. 
And he's the one we worship. He's the one whom we have communion with. He's the one in whom we find our salvation. So if someone is truly seeking Christ, I have no worries about them at all. Yes, I believe that they should be in the Orthodox Church. Absolutely. But I also believe that until the end of time, there's a lot of journey ahead of, of all of us. And um, so seek Christ in this moment and seek him with your whole heart. And, you know, uh, I believe that you will find him, that he will reveal himself to you. That he's not going to let that, uh, that sincere desire go to waste, right? So that's, I would say, why be orthodox? It's not going to answer the objections of people who have a whole bunch of arguments to, to, uh, to deploy. Um, those things are important to me. I've written a lot about them. Uh, my largest book is about that stuff, but, um, but ultimately it's really just about sort of clearing the path and we have to walk the path. It's talking about the path can be helpful, but if all we ever do is talk and sift arguments and so forth, then we're not really on it. As for where you can find my stuff, um, probably the best compendium of all of it together is at my blog, which you can go to andrewstephendamick.com. And that'll take you to my blog, which is on the Ancient Faith website. And from there, you can connect to my books. I've got uh, three books published and one more on the way. So Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy is the first book. And that's about all these questions about, you know, what is the difference between Orthodox Christianity and almost everything else? Uh, the second book is called An Introduction to God, and it's kind of about primal questions of religion, like why go to church? What's the whole point in being moral anyway? Um, the third book is called Bearing God, and it's a look at the, the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch, that early, early disciple of the Apostle John. And then my fourth book is called Arise, O God, and it is a look at the, the gospel of Jesus Christ from an Orthodox perspective and how he defeated demons, sin, and death. And that God willing should be coming out just a little bit later this summer. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, I also have a bunch of podcasts. The one that's sort of the hottest one right now is Lord of Spirits, which I co-host with Father Stephen DeYoung. Uh, but I also just recommend people check out Amon Sewell, which is my Tolkien podcast. Um, check out the Areopagus, in which I have conversations with a Protestant pastor who is a close friend of mine about all of these things and way more. Um, and then Orthodox Engagement, which is an interview podcast, and the others are kind of archived pieces as well there. So yeah, I've got lots going on. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty available. Wonderful. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to checking out some of your other work as well that I haven't gotten to yet, and I'm happy to leave links in the description for all those things for people who want to check that out. I'll close as I always do by saying thank you all who watch this whenever it is you watch it in the future for your time. I don't take that lightly. And until next time, go out and be on the lookout for more videos. And as always, most importantly, go out and love God and love others because truly above all else, that will change the world. 